the True Crime Podcast. Some of the content on this show might be too graphic for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi guys and welcome to Crime Wives. I'm your host, Veronica. And I'm your host, Destiny. And we're here. Yeah. <laughs> I never know what to say after that. We're here. We're happy to be here. Yeah, we're, happy we're to be here. Talking crime. You're wherever you are listening to this. You're welcome. Hi. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this seems like the right part to say. Before we get into things, we wanted to ask if you could do us a huge favor. Stop whatever you're doing right now. Don't close the app. Just go to the part where you can uh, give us a rate or a review or like do both. Five stars, please. Thank you. We love you. It'd be the best ever if you could just help us out. And if you haven't already, please give us a follow on Facebook or... You don't really have to go follow us on Facebook, actually. Uh, we would prefer if you could follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you have any recommendations, um, please do email them to crimewivespodcast at gmail.com that I finally know how to say without looking on a piece of paper. Or stuttering. Or stuttering, Yes. Um, because we, I, last week I said, we haven't been getting any recommendations. This week I'm covering a recommendation. So. Perfect. We do get recommendations, but we, I, I just always want to try and bring at least one thing that some people want to hear. I yeah. Know so if there's something you'd like to hear, uh, specifically Instagram, we're there all the time. So send us something on Instagram or email us at crimewebspodcast.gmail.com. Perfect. Oh, also, if you're new here and you want to hear crime stuff, give me a second. I'm going to talk about myself. <laughs> and then you can just fast forward and there will be crime. And it's going to be good. It's going to be real good. Yeah. Okay, so, well, I mean, what are you... I kind of know. I know everything yeah. about your life. Yeah. But what are you... What have you been doing this week? What are you doing this week? Well, like last week, still close enough to Christmas. But that's all I'm... I feel like that's all I'm thinking about right now. I'm in holiday mode. But my son turned five yesterday. <laughs> She's crying. Yeah, I'm old. You should have seen me yesterday. By the end of the day, I had a migraine. I was like, man, why do I have such a bad migraine? I'm like, oh, probably because I've cried four times today. <laughs> You're like, why is there black running all down my face <laughs> yeah. all day? My makeup held up well, I will say. It did. I saw a bunch of pictures. It looks <laughs> yeah. great. So good job. Lots of tears on top of that. Yeah, Lincoln turned five. We had um, the thing that I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait till I get on the podcast. My sisters bought Lincoln a balloon animal making kit. And last oh night, my god! I <laughs> can just imagine his face when he first opened it. He was like, "What the heck is this?" Yeah, like he didn't have much of a reaction. I also was like, "You got him a blow up pool?" Like from the box alone, I was like, "Oh great, this will be so cool in the summer." Six months. Yeah, I was real. And then they started pulling out the balloons, and we're like straight pumping them up. And there's these, lo- and I'm just, and by the end of last night, there was animal balloons or balloon animals everywhere we found out that my sister whose name is tyler but my husband's brother's name is also tyler so tyler and tyler were both there are fantastic balloon artists i can 100 percent see that too. yeah tyler my sister tyler made some balloon flower that wasn't even on the thing and didn't even look it up and just pulled out a flower i'm like okay overachiever <laughs> and meanwhile i'm like look i made a you're like so if anything like if you ever can't find a job go to vegas yeah. um, and you can make some balloon weird things yeah there. you can be real weird but you will make some money somewhere 
And I made a circle, and then there was like a little sad wobbly string on the end, and I was like, it's a mirror? Yeah, no, it was bad. Um, but because of that, my... out of all the things you came up with, it's a mirror. <laughs> well, it looked like a handle. I don't freaking okay, know. It okay. was awful. <laughs> and then, of course, Lincoln was real supportive. He's like, "Look, it's a magnifying glass. Great work, mom." It like hangs Slopes over. over. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "Oh, it's the saddest thing that's ever been made." And also, my son is super supportive. I know. I'm like, thanks, babe. He or now because of it, my my back window. I have like a. I don't know how to describe my trunk, but there's a window in my trunk because um, it's just a little car. There is animal. I was driving on my way here and I was like, what is waving? And I look in my mirror and it's just all <laughs> just these balloons. a bunch of balloons. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what am I going to do with all these freaking balloons? <laughs> so, all over your house. I'm sure when you get home, you're like, oh, you made more. Yeah, I know. Well, the pump was out before I left. I'm like, oh, God, you're taking all of these home. You're giving them to your friends at school. I don't. <laughs> you're like, I'm sorry, but Rue popped them all while you were sleeping. <laughs> Just me downstairs. <laughs> 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 yeah. They're awful. But sorry, I, I don't think you'll be able to hear it. Okay, if you say so. I don't ever know. Sorry, there's sirens in the background and I never know when we should be quiet. Which reminds me, today I accidentally called nine one one. I mean it sounds that's great timing. Because now you can probably definitely hear these sirens. Very on brand. So why did you call 911? I didn't do it on purpose. My phone is in my pocket, and I, like, pull my phone out, and it says, unknown caller, and Travis was at home on his lunch, and I'm like, that's weird. It never says unknown. It just mm-hmm. says, like, their number, or it'll send them straight to voicemail if I don't know them, So, which is what I have my phone do purposefully. And then I was like, that's weird. And then for whatever reason, usually if I get a call from someone I don't know, I don't go back in the call log, but I go, went back in the call log, and I was like, Oh, that's weird. It says the last call I made was to 911, and I had, like, my robe on over my clothes. For warmth, I get cold. And it was it was in my robe pocket the whole time. So somehow it, it shows underneath that it says, like, contact, emergency, but it was an outgoing call. I'm like, ah, oh, great. So I, did they call you back? Yeah, of course. That's what they're supposed and to do. And they didn't send it? Okay. I didn't answer, so they probably didn't know my location, I'm assuming. But they, they never sent a, po- a police officer. Actually, my call, I was like, the heck? <laughs> and then, of course, because that happened, I'm like, wait, do I call them back and tell them it was just an accident? And Travis was like, nah, nah, don't call them. They, maybe they won't even, you know. So then I was like, ah, oh, shoot, I gotta go put a bra on. <laughs> like, just, what if somebody shows up? Yes, so I literally went upstairs and put a bra on, and we're upstairs, and Lincoln's like, Wait, is a co- is a cop coming to arrest you? And I was like, oh no, no, God. no, no, no. They might come because they might think there was a problem. I understand there's. I could have handled this way differently. <laughs> I, I'm saying this to an audience, and I always forget. But I just was like, that's fine. If they show up, I'll just tell them it was an accident, and I won't call them back because Travis said not to. And Lincoln goes, "Can I tell them yesterday was my birthday?" <laughs> I was like. That is the most five-year-old thing you've ever said. <laughs> You're like, yes, 100% you can. And maybe it'll make them so they're not mad at me. Yeah, and then, of course, the UPS guy came, like, three times after that. And every time Lincoln's in the window, whoop, nope, not a police officer. <laughs> like, oh, God, if the UPS man hears that, he's like, oh, Jesus Christ, yeah. run. I was like, what is my life right now? <laughs> yeah. So no police officer ever showed up, which would have sucked if I was actually being murdered. But um, if I was being murdered, I probably would have tried to call again. Or maybe maybe it was, like, on in my pocket and they could hear that I was just... I was literally vacuuming. They're like, hello? <laughs> yeah. Hello? 
They're like, uh, sounds like someone's being suctioned into something. I think we're fine. They're fine. There's no screen. And then they call back and they're like, okay, they're definitely. I didn't uh, answer it. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't know I how s- I feel about this whole the fact that they never thing came. that happened. Yes, yeah. I'm like, do I? Mm, uh, next time. So for anyone that needs to call 911, stay on the line. I know that that's so real. My face. I'm just like, oh, <laughs> yeah. geez. Just very concerned to sit over yes, here. Yes, real concerned right now, so. Maybe if we didn't live in the same city, I'd be like, ah, sucks to live in your city. No, but I live in your city. We and... live in the same city. And as it turns out, if there's an emergency, they won't. I mean, there wasn't oh, an emergency. I mean, yeah, we so I'm not mad. <laughs> yeah, I really don't want to say things. I'm sure the PD around here is. They're has... great. I know some of them. They're fabulous. Can't we love to... you guys. We're off the I subject. went to high school with some of you. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> they are not listening. But just in case. <laughs> You never know. Come to people's houses when they call 911. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Or, I'm so yeah, glad I they know. didn't that show up. That whole situation was, that's interesting. That's good to know. Um, yeah, so the police never showed up. That was the moral of my story. <laughs> and it was a big accident. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, yeah. So anyways, I that's, I don't even know where to go from what that. I'm doing this week. <laughs> Happy Wednesday, guys. Bye. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, I guess we should start off by saying these are going to be released on Christmas and New Year's Day, so we're doing a two-parter. Yeah, I made Destiny say something this time. <laughs> I just was quiet. Right? You're like, I'll just listen to you. Yeah. Um, and on that note, what are you talking about this week? Okay, listen here. Um, the, the case I'm talking about, first of all, was a recommendation by someone who chose, who said, please do not mention me. And I will just say it's because of their job. Okay. I'll tell you later, though. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, this is, I truly had never heard of this. And and whatever you, you've talked to me about it before, and I still didn't. I was like, there's no way I know what, I've heard of this before. How did I never heard of this? And then you saw who I was doing, and we obviously have a shared email account. She's like, I know who this is. How do you not? So Well, and I had said, I was like, I told you about, like, a couple <laughs> different things regarding this. I just didn't. And then, yeah, you didn't know the name. Yeah, I didn't know. I might not, I don't even think I said the name, so. Yeah, and because I'd never known the story, I think if I would have known the story, I'd have been like, whoa, tied it all back together. Mm, No. So I had that moment today when I was like, whoa, that's okay, crazy. So now that no one or everyone has no idea what we're talking about, (laughs) I'm doing the story of, I've titled it Michael Frankie and Frank Gable. So Frank Gable is going to play a pretty small role in my story um, for a few reasons, and then I'll bring it back up. But my sources originally were Wikipedia and then unsolvedmysteries.fandom.com, which is a fun website, um, and then statesmanjournal.com, because as an, for anyone who is not in Oregon um, or doesn't even, you know, we've got some random listeners from all over the place, this is another Oregon story. Um, but of course, it's recommended by someone who lives here. So, yeah. like, you gotta cover this. So, this is mostly the Michael Frankie story. And I also want to say before I get into it, I listened to Murder in Oregon, the podcast, afterwards, or like after I wrote most of this. And I knew when I was researching it that I was getting like really condensed information. And when I started listening to the podcast, I'm only, I think I'm episode three in. And I'm like, wow, anyone who knows this story and then hears my version of it is going to be like, 
you left a lot out and um, I am sorry I'm doing this off of a request so I'm putting as much information as I can into this <laughs> it's a very Wikipedia version of it because obviously I mean it's there's so much. Well, and I think this. I think honestly we can say in any case we we do have we have to leave things <laughs> out or we're going to be making a whole podcast on every yes. episode. And when so. I say a lot of the ones that I look up I'm like you could have a whole podcast on this. There's literally a whole podcast on this. If this but the, if my version of this story intrigues you at all, I cannot recommend enough to go listen to uh, Murder in Oregon is the podcast. It's yeah. very well done. <laughs> Much. They sound way cooler. Well, than and we I'll do. just say, like, it, it's sponsored by like our heart, I Heart Radio. Yeah. Um, the family of Michael Frankie. So I don't know much about this story. You yeah. obviously know. You gone. I learned that. <laughs> I dated somebody that's actually related to this family. Do you um, know how they're related? I do, okay. but I'm gonna kind of. Okay. I'm gonna leave that out. We dated in high school. Uh, but I'm also friends with some of his family on social media mm-hmm. and that's how it kind of, that's why it came up in conversation. I was like, I saw this and his family ran some raves about that podcast. Oh, so yeah. I just want to throw it's that out really there. It's really well done. And something that I will say is when you look on Wikipedia, they give you, you know, here's what we know about it. Bum, 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 bum. Here's yeah. It. And there was a lot of conflicting information on like statesmanjournal.com and then this unsolved mysteries a lot of the information on this case it because there are a ton of conspiracy theories mm-hmm. a ton and so i'm giving the best of my knowledge information just facts boom 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 and then i'm probably going to stop and discuss a little bit more so than i would usually do and i'm going to try and stay on track cuz okay. i just wanted <laughs> to just so um Right off the bat, I will just give information just kind of about... His name is James Michael Frankie, um, and I did put Frankie in, like, parentheses of how to pr- pronounce it, only because there's... I wanted to say it correctly, because I'm like, I'm really going to be talking about a dude referring to his last name as Frankie, and then the guy who is in the story is also Frank Gable. Like, pff, yeah, confusing. So, James Michael Frankie was from Kansas City, Missouri, Um, He attended New Mexico Highlands University on a football scholarship where he graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in a combined major political science, economics, German, and French. Jeez. After this, he attended the University of Virginia Law School on a scholarship and later graduated with a law degree in 1971. or and in 1971 he was admitted to the Virginia Bar. So for the next three years he was Judge Advocate General the United States Navy at Long Beach Naval Station. So like this is just this man was accomplished. Yeah very well educated. mm -hmm. Very very well educated. He was and when he was whatever the sports that he was in um, I'm fairly certain it might have been football could have been basketball this man was very tall he was like six four oh wow yeah so he um I, I mean especially after listening to the other podcast the first episode is mostly told from the um viewpoint from his brother so okay. i was two episodes and was crying just to be clear um because this they they had a lot of good things to say about my, michael frankie um but he basically just works his way up in the judicial system pretty quickly. Um, and in 1975, he starts working as an assistant attorney general to the State Department of Corrections for New Mexico. And they, again, 
Wikipedia is just like, and then in New Mexico, he did a little bit of work and he kept on. And then in this, in the podcast, they say that in New Mexico, he like, when he set, set out to like do a task and he was like, I, he, he loved the law. <laughs> That's yeah. all I'm saying is he just made a, a really huge headway. Um, so in 1975, that's when he starts working for the corrections in New Mexico. And then while in New Mexico, he's brought to investigate several riots in a New Mexico prison that left 33 inmates dead. Oh my God. He was the first civilian allowed in right after the scene. So he, there was 33, and they said it was like a battleground. And there was bodies I can not blood. imagine. Yeah. And no. I, and of course, doesn't say that on Wikipedia, so I was just like, and then he went, and then... Of course, he like kept a pair of boots from it somehow, and like kind of as a momentum. Uh, just, just he was he. Ha- I can't even imagine the life that he or the things that he saw. Yeah. But, um, essentially, he was very successful in his position in New Mexico. Um, he then goes on to serve until 1980, when he became a judge for the first district court um, in Santa Fe. So he serves as a judge for three years, and in 1983. He became the director of uh, Department of Corrections, so he's the he's the correctional like high up. Um, and I also wrote so essentially by 1983 he is the law. <laughs> Good one, Ron. <laughs> he is the law. So essentially, what I put here is that his by now his efforts and accomplishments are not unnoticed, and he is well established for work um, that he commits himself to. In the cases because he does have that like when I focuses on something he gets it done that that sort of um, aspect however I don't necessarily know that that's why he was um, why he transferred to Oregon or why he was offered this position because he was offered a few different positions I think that eventually though he's offered the position in Oregon by Governor Neil Goldschmidt which is a mouthful. Um, but the, so this is in May of 1987. Uh, Oregon Governor Neil Goldschmidt offers Frankie the same position um, in Oregon with the intent to basically, this is again, this is what I kind of got off of it at first, to basically have Michael come to Oregon and do the same work that he was doing and well known for in New Mexico. However, Hone in on that information now. Keep it in your... So that when we get to the end, we can rediscuss that. Okay. Because um, that's all I'll say about that. Okay. So Michael Frankie accepts the position, and he's introduced later that year as the new director of Oregon's prison system. So he's the same thing that he was in New Mexico. That's essentially what he does now. He has a ton of people that are um, brought in to work for him. He works kind of directly under Neil Goldschmidt. Okay. Essentially, this is where the most well-known details of the case are, like, publicized from here on out. Um, But then again, I learned so much more from the podcast that I listened to afterwards. So, for anyone that gets angry that I am kind of giving the most, the most, I don't know, just simple simple facts. Yes. Minimal version. I apologize. We'll kind of cover it at the end. Okay. By now, it's June of 1987, and Oregon State Senate confirms Frankie, who officially takes helm of an agency of agency, and now answers to governor instead of human resource department, which is kind of what I already said. And for anyone who, like me, is a little bit confused about law terminology, what I've come to conclude is that Michael Frankie was essentially hired to help 
clean house in a yeah. sense. Um, it's kind of what he was known for, so I think that's what they brought him in for. Or now, I think that's what he decided to do. Okay. Um, whenever he got here, I think he made the decision after that that things needed it's, to be fixed. Yeah, which oh. can sometimes cause yes. some issues. <laughs> so. By December 1998, the state prison population is over 5,000 for the first time ever, um, which Frankie reports uh, the second most crowded system in the country. Oh, wow. And is reported that state facilities are designed to house about 2,800 inmates and the department budget to handle uh, 4,000. So they're obviously exceeding those. They are well over their capacity. Just like in New Mexico, here in Oregon, especially at the time in this area, the jails were real bad. Real bad. And um, obviously overpopulation. They were kind of like, kind of sewagey, if you will. Like, Ugh. they weren't a great place to go yeah. already. Um, but that's kind of what he helped with in New Mexico. So it's not something that he was necessarily expecting. I mean, it wasn't something that he couldn't handle. However, what I do know, and I'm going to say right now, he was in over his head. Just going to say that. Okay. So, on January 11th, 1989, the Statesman Journal reported Frankie and his department was under scrutiny by the Oregon Legislature for spiraling expenses. Frankie basically said, yes, we're over budget right now, but it's because we are adding a new prison um, to try and get with the overwhelming inmate population, and we are making changes I don't want a budget. Um, I don't want to have to, like he was, I know that obviously paying taxes makes you think, why the heck are you doing that? But he was like, another thing that he focused on, He re, his huge message was, I think we should be putting most of our money into the children so that we're trying, he wanted to like nip it in the bud so they never go to jail. Yeah, and yeah. that was his, and what a great outlook to be able to wish upon things, but Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. So, now we'll get to the story. Okay. <laughs> it's early um, early morning, January 18th, 1989, around 12.45 a.m. Um, a prison guard is doing rounds for the morning, and I want it to be clear, this is how Wikipedia tells this story. Okay. Okay. Um, a prison guard is kind of... Uh, doing his morning rounds essentially is what it says and he comes upon a body lying in a pool of blood on the side of a porch of the north porch or north portico is what it was called but it's essentially just a big old porch um on the dome building in salem which do you know have you ever seen 100 percent know exactly where that is so for anyone that hasn't and i didn't put this here it's kind of it looks like a beautiful library (laughs) and it's just an old building and there's a little dome on the top Mm -hmm. and you can see it and that's why it's called the dome building so from the front, and I'm going to describe this a little bit. I didn't put this here, but um, there's kind of like a lot of shrubbery because we're in Oregon, so there's lots of shrubbery all over the place, but it's mostly well-kempt. There's some parking. There's a large field next to it, especially at the time. I don't know if it's a large field anymore, but at the time there was a large field area-ish next to it. And, or like, I'm not going to say huge, but... Yeah, it's a decent size. Yeah, so, um, but it does look very... Um, library I guess you like just kind of just like a giant kind of creepy building what I'll say but also beautiful I don't know that's weird (laughs) especially at the time that's what it looked like so 
this guy's out doing his morning rounds is how Wikipedia tells the story is that this guy's out doing and he comes upon a dead body um, and the body is near a door and the door has a little hole through the glass and upon further inspection um, that he could see that the body had been brutally stabbed to death and eventually oh. it's determined that this is the body of Michael Frankie. Um, again, I will note um, that his body was found on the side porch area of the dome building. <laughs> Just needs to okay. say that. Okay. An autopsy eventually shows that the cause of death is um, from a stab wound that was from in the heart, but there was other, he suffered um, a lot of other, quote, defensive wounds were all found as well, mm-hmm. so he was stabbed multiple times. And so begins one of the most high-profile, now unsolved murders in the investigation of or in Oregon's history. Sorry, I don't know why I put the word investigation in there. When the first parts of the timeline are pieced together, it's said that Frankie was last seen alive by the dome building by a staff at approximately 6.45. This woman is on, is recorded and interviewed on the podcast. Okay, is this 6.45 morning or night? P.M., sorry. Okay. 6.45 p.m. on January 17th. Okay. Okay, so day before. Um, she is recorded or interviewed on this podcast, and so I have a different version of her story in the podcast, and I'm gonna, just going to say what she said instead, because it says that two employees were leaving the dome building approximately 40 minutes later, noted that his car was parked in a designated parking spot outside of the front, which is true, um, entryway of the driver, and the driver's door was open and the light was on. Um, however, there was no obvious That's odd. forced yeah, entry or anything like that. She says she closes the door, she goes back in, and she calls, or she's like looking around for him. She mm-hmm. doesn't see him. She, I don't think she went to his office, but she says she called somebody. I, she calls somebody and says, I can't find him, and I just found his door this way. She goes home, and she said, Right off the bat, she got weird vibes. Just was not. Yeah, that's just a very odd situation. And she, yeah, and she said something just didn't feel right. She went home that night and told her husband, and she remembers telling her husband something's not right. So the next morning, when they tell her that the body had been found, she was like, "I knew it. I knew he had been murdered, or I knew that something was something was wrong." Wrong. So she, whoever she calls on scene, what from what I understand. So these two employees claim that they locked the door or that it was just her. She might have been with somebody else, but that other person's not named. They shut the door, went straight back to the dome building, and start making phone calls um, to the senior staffers to figure out where Frankie's whereabouts. Of course, no one knows where he is at the time and isn't answering a pager that he always had on him. So security was notified um, by near by communication center, and the employees left the dome building approximately after eight oh five. So okay, two hours. She apparently leaves. The people that were called, I believe that she mentions that this Richard Peterson is who she calls, head of institutions, and David Coley, Cowley, David Cowley is head of planning and budget. They arrive approximately eight thirty five p.m. Okay. So not about two, about two hours has gone by right now. And they start to conduct what they describe as a, quote, meticulous search of the dome building. Um, but they say that they found nothing that seemed off. However, again, in the podcast, another employee notes two things, that 
nobody ever went to his office. Like, one of these men that showed up, I'm unfortunately, I don't know if it was Richard Peterson or if it was David Coley, went to his own office and just... Yeah, why would... Uh, that's okay. odd that you wouldn't go to... How... Yeah, so... Um, police were also never notified. Then, the, of course, so I just, I kind of did like a quick breakdown of the timeline. Uh, they find his car with a light on, door open, 645. They can't get a hold of him, so they call senior staffers in. Those staffers come about two hours after, um, around 845 to help look for Frankie's body and do a, quote, meticulous search of the area. They can't find him, so they go home, and his body is then found just outside of that same building about four hours later, brutally stabbed. There are two things, there are two questions that I had that I don't, I'm fairly certain there was no blood in his car, there was no blood around his car. However, what they, what it seemed as though happened is that, what their breakdown of this was, is that it looked like he was trying to get back in the building after he had his wounds and was trying to punch a window to unlock himself back in and then fell right there and died. However, there wasn't a ton of blood that led up to this area. Yeah. So, now, before I get into how this pans out, something that Unsolved Mysteries website website notes is that before his death, he had told several family members, and I'm going to get a little bit into this at the end too, he had told several family members that he was doing a, quote, top secret investigation into drug trafficking and other corruption he's referring to in his own job, corruption in the Oregon prison system, um, that he planned to name several high-level officials. Now, I put this, that was supposed to happen the day after his death. He was going to meet and tell them, yes, he was going to meet and tell them all of this, everything, because he was so good at his job, he he truly had uncovered a ton of things, and I'm fairly certain at this point he was probably one of the only people that wasn't in the good old boys club. They brought a transplant from somewhere who didn't come from, you know, someone yeah. who wasn't in Oregon, who was like, well, a lot of things are who not going well Who was a straight well line here. and wasn't going to fold in and become, No, oh my yes. God. So he was just, I truly believe that he was just out doing his job and got killed in the process, we'll say. Um, right off, right off the bat, I think that everyone thought that you, the exact same thoughts that you and I, there was a lot of speculation, um, by everyone outside of the case that this was some sort of hit. Um, however, there was a claim that a massive investigation, um, takes place within the Oregon State Police and Marion County District's Attorney's Office, um, leading the way, and then in 1989, uh, May, police get what they refer to as a, quote, tip-off that kind of takes them in a different direction. Okay. Now, this tip-off was very confusing to me online, and I was like, where did it come from? So if you're confused, trust me. Uh, So, because of this, uh, they interrogated uh, several drug dealers and street criminals. Um, This is the part that has very limited details online. Um, However, somehow, a local teen runaway named Jody Swearingen comes forward and eventually testifies at court, or before a grand jury, that she had witnessed the murder. Okay. Mm-hmm. Police reports indicate that she identified the murderer and witnessed the crime take place, somehow. Eventually, she pegs this man, 
whose name is killer, or I'm sorry, the killer as Frank Gable. Okay. Frank Gable was a small-time methamphetamine dealer who other inmates um, claimed to have heard bragging about the murder after it had taken place. So then all of a sudden they're like, nope, it was a robbery gone wrong. He was probably going through the glove box trying to find something. I don't even know how the heck he was in the parking lot of this area, but this is literally the information they have. That Frank Gable was probably going through the the box. His, um, like... Yeah, his glove box. Glove box, there we go. And was caught off guard in the middle of a robbery, stabbed him, and then left the scene. However, again, from it is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, that there was no blood found on his car, around, or at his car. It was just parked where it was supposed to be parked. Obviously, if there would have been blood around it, that lady who was just calmly went home would have been like, but there was blood or something. Yeah, yeah. So, or maybe called 911. I don't know. Um, I guess she is kind of 911, but still. (laughs) Like, not the... Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, this Jody Swearinger girl says Frank Gable. um, However, it is worth noting here now that she um, later recanted her testimony, instead claiming that it was actually another Salem drug dealer named Timothy Navidad, um, and that he had committed the murder. And this is also after the the grand jury. So, despite the reports that the FBI was investigating a possible connection between official corruption and drug smuggling at the state penitentiary for Michael Frankie's murder, Frank Gable is convicted of Michael Frank's what? murder. What? Yes. Frankie. I, I Michael Frank. Oh, Frankie. Sorry, did I say Frankel? <laughs> you said Frank. Oh, just Frank. Oh, see, Frank It kind of looks like Frank. I get, I get it. Yeah. It's rough. Um, also noteworthy is that um, at court, one of their strongest pieces of evidence was that Frank Gable had wounds on him at the time of the murder um, that were consistent with what he might have obtained during the struggle. And then they introduced a knife that was actually purchased by the investigators. But it was to say, basically, to his ex-wife who they put on stand, does this match the knife that you bought for him one time? And apparently she was like, yep, sure looks like a knife I got him. They're like, well, we think this is probably what it looks like that stabbed him. They went out and bought, (laughs) I'm like, a red flag of all time. (laughs) So, okay. People can't see my face, but I'm just puzzled face all over the place. Her her eyebrows are pushed real close together. They're just doing a lot of things right (laughs) now, this whole entire episode. Uh, Yeah. So, and I'm almost done with the information that I have, but um, I still have a few more notes to make after this. On June 27th, 1991, uh, Gable was convicted of six counts of aggravated murder and one count of murder. And he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay. However. Okay. (laughs) In October of 2014, the federal, and again, this is condensed information, obviously a lot of time passes. In October of 2014, the Federal Public Defender's Office sought to report the case on appeal. And on April 18th, 2019, so April of this year, uh, U.S. Magistrate Judge John Acosta ruled that Frank Gable must be retired or released within 90 days. Nothing among other trial issues that many witnesses presented since have recanted. 
and their testimony was obtained via coercive interrogation tactics and polygraph examinations. I have goosebumps. Right? Oh my god. So, (laughs) basically because so many people recanting their stories, evidence not lining up, and the fact that what they had to convict convict him in court was a freaking knife that they bought and all this just awful evidence. I can't even get into the court stuff right now. But on June 28th, 2019, after serving 30 years for this crime, oh my God. Frank Gable was released from prison. Those were the goosebumps that I got earlier. I was like, I, well, I got them again. Yeah. This is That's so sad. Yeah. Now, this is the part where I, I also put here, now time for conspiracy theory talk. I'm obviously not going to get super into it. I, I will absolutely say I totally think it was a hit. He was abs- I, yeah, he was investigating too many like to things. Me. And the more that I listened to this podcast, and then the more that I just kind of like looked into just Oregon um, history as far as um, basically Oregon judicial history, mm-hmm. it was, and I'm assuming probably still is, and I, I mean this, it, good old boys club. It was a good old boys club back then. And if you stepped on toes when they were, there was a lot. I cannot stress enough, if you like this story, start listening to the podcast, um, Murder in Oregon. Because they cover a lot of things that are true facts that Oregon judicial system, or not necessarily judicial system, but just the correctional facilities in general were doing to get money or to... They were letting inmates out sometimes to get. I'll drugs. have to listen. I haven't, and like I said, I don't know much. I didn't know much. Yeah. I do now. Yeah. Um. I didn't know much about this. I just kind of. Yeah. So the other thing. Uh, so I did. Obviously, I put a few of the conspiracy theories here. Um, former state treasurer Jim Hill has made it clear that he doesn't believe that Frank is quote altogether innocent of the crime, or that he or another perpetrator was a hired hitman rather than. A chance car burglar, which is a weird quote in itself, but I think what he's trying to say is, I'm not going to say that he's innocent or that he's not innocent, but also I don't... Like he might be involved. But because we don't actually have enough evidence to prove that he was. Yeah. So, and then I I also had quoted here that the Frank, the Frankie family led by Michael Frankie's brother, Kim Frankie, um... (laughs) Kevin Frankie, sorry, I don't even know why I said Kim. Kevin Frankie have also publicly expressed doubts and, oh man, um, he's expressed doubts about the official conclusion. Kevin Frankie has claimed that prior to his death, Michael Frankie warned him of a threat on his life and told him that he discovered a network of corruption in the department. And then, of course, his family found some discrepancies in the police's uh, official version of the events surrounding his murder. For instance, Michael had a car alarm system that would have gone off if Gable was breaking into his car. Again, these are conspiracy theories, not my own opinions. But also, um, there appeared to be no signs of forced entry into the car. So if Michael had been stabbed at the car, there should have been blood around it, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. However, there was no trace of blood for more than 100 feet from the car, which he was parked in an area. I mean, where he was parked, there's visible, you can see the front door. Yeah. (laughs) And he was found right outside of the front door. So... Finally, it seemed unlikely that he was murdered at 7 p.m. if his body was not found during the search of the um, building at 8.30 p.m. And essentially, that's... Oh, there's a little bit more here. I put that his family and several others 
obviously I ride this boat very hardly, uh, like very hard. Um, he, they believe that Michael was killed during the uh, premeditation during a premeditated murder committed by several men, possibly the high-ranking officials that were to be named in his investigation. And then the last thing I say here is that is the very condensed, very scandalous, and now unsolved murder of Salem, Oregon's judge Michael Frankie. Oh my God! Yeah, that's. So, I just want to know. Well, and I'm, I'm like basically everybody else. I yeah. just want to know. So I, what I will say here is, I'm very glad that you, you're like, have you heard there's a podcast about it? Because I went into this just here's the information about the story, mm-hmm. and and that's pretty much the. I wish I could explain the the just utter heartfeltness you hear in his brother's voice to this day. Like whenever this podcast was made, is way after his brother was murdered and there is a part in it where he talks about having to tell his mom that his brother was killed and and he starts crying and I'm crying and I'm like I couldn't and so it's not just a judge was killed someone's son was killed someone and he was raised in a really good family they they always they like reference it as um what are those like Christmas pictures that Norman Rockwell? There we go. Oh. Um, like that that kind of scene and came yeah. and clearly he was really well accomplished man and just, I mean maybe he had some flaws in him like the rest of us humans do, but it sounds like he just wanted to just make things right. And also I understand that like, there's always that well sometimes exposing stuff doesn't mean you're making things right. Sounds like he could have changed a lot yeah, of things. Yeah, like he was on the right track, definitely. Just like he did before, and was and someone did not want that. And I truly believe that's what happened. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That's so. wild. So, yeah, there's that. And I think this is actually now one of my favorite cases that I've covered because I love me a scandalous story. But also... I don't, I don't, I just connected with this a lot. I don't yeah. even know why. Just, I felt real in deep. No, yeah, <laughs> so. no, it, you did a good job. And yeah, I'm going to have to listen to that other podcast just to go dive yeah. a little bit deeper into just this. See how it is. Even the first two episodes, just to get a little bit more and you get a little bit of backstory and they did a really good job. It was just really good. But hey, you gave people this and then it's like, if you guys want to know even more. I'm just here, just uh, just making you go listen to another podcast that they're exactly. not paying me. I'm just here. Like, you're, <laughs> I'm your free advertisement. Right. You're welcome. There you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Crime Boys out! <laughs>